Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, live from NYC PodFest, you'll hear Jackie Cation. I'm five foot four. Too much info. Too much info. But Kevin told me it's a podcast, so I got to describe myself. Anyway. That and more. But before we start, I just want to say, you know, trips to the post office are never convenient. So why not get postage right from your own desk with Stamps.com? Stamps.com even gives you special postage discounts that you can't get at the post office, including first class, priority mail, express, international, and more. You'll never pay full price for postage again. Here's how Stamps.com works. Using your own computer and printer, you buy and print official U.S postage for any letter or package. Then just hand the mail to your mailman or drop it in your mailbox. It's that easy. It's no wonder 500,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our special promo code, R-I-S-K, to get this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Also, as you might remember, Chris Castiglione was a member of the RISK team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. And with his business partner, Matan, Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and commented on just how easy it is to learn to code with the One Month video course. But remember, the One Month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to to build their first web application, like a photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person that can help you. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. 
Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And of course, you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. And now, here is Risk live from NYC PodFest 2015. through this first fucking week. <laughs> Holy shit! We all got off to a real start, didn't we? Oh my goodness, massacres and... Uh, it, it's always like the busiest damn week of the year. If someone should record a song, it's the least wonderful time. But we're at the weekend. We're at our first weekend of the New Year, so let's celebrate it! Now, how many people here have heard the Risk podcast before? Just in case you haven't, if you're a newcomer, if you were just grabbed off the street in this peculiar neighborhood. Uh, Risk is the show where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So, it's the kind of stories you would not hear on NPR, right? It's the kind of things that Ira Glass cannot run. Uh, I've even gotten emails from him before where he said, you know, I don't think we can do this story, Kevin. Maybe you could. So nothing is too X-rated, nothing's too emotional, nothing's too inappropriate. We say nothing's inappropriate until something most definitely is. And that, that's usually me. If, if no one else supplies that, I do. Uh, now, <laughs> ordinarily on Risk, we have these uh, themes that are, you know, they're kind of like big themes. We'll have themes like euphoric or um, bewilderment or outrage. But, because this is the biggest show we'll have done in New York City in ages, we decided to go with a much more profound theme tonight. And that is butts. <laughs> the truth is, I just brainstorm a bunch of words and give it to my producer and they land on whatever the fuck date they land on. <laughs> so I'm like, oh shit, our big bellhouse show is butts? Anyway, here's the thing. The themes are actually kind of optional for the storytellers, so some of our storytellers will indeed stray rather far from butts. But I'm someone who rarely does. 
I really and truly do believe that there may be no one in the world as obsessed with butts as me. And, you know, it's very funny because, like, I'm not telling a story tonight because I just, we've got, like, five phenomenal people, but there's not enough time for me as well. So I'm like, well, fuck! The guy who's definite, every, every one of my stories is pretty much about butts. What it is, is it's my pursuit of butts that gets me into certain circumstances, right? Like the story about the time the guy forced me to tie my shoes to my balls. There was the time, you, a lot of you might have heard the Kevin Goes to Kink Camp episode of the show. There, but there was also the time I went to kink camp and had to teach a class called Everything You Can Do to a Butt Other Than Fuck It. And it was 90 minutes of me talking to everything I've ever done to butts. And then at the end, some young man raised his hand and he was like, you forgot that you can poke a butt with an electrified cattle prod. I was like, oh my God, I forgot. I forgot that one. So I was like, all right, I'll take down my pants, I'll take down my underwear, and you, son, can shock me with an electrified cattle prod. Now, I did not think that, you know, it's always best to be in bondage when that sort of thing is going on because I flew. It's not an, it's not an embellishment. I flew like Superman directly into the student body, slightly injuring two of them. So... There's a part of me that feels like, oh my God, all of my, my great pursuits of butts. You know, wouldn't it be so vindicating if like one day it was discovered? Proctologists had never noticed it before, but the meaning of life, right? The, um, the, maybe the key to world peace might be like up our butts, right? Like, maybe there's a little fortune cookie fortune up there. And if that was ever discovered, then everyone would think amazing things about me, right? People would be like, holy crap, Kevin Allison, like, so selflessly spent all those decades with his face stuffed in butts. He must have been searching for the truth. But... Lately, I've also been kind of obsessing over the idea of happiness, right? Because there's so many stories that we feature on the show about people struggling, people, you know, having tragedies to deal with, all that sort of thing. And last year, like, we started getting almost a million downloads per month. So Risk is doing really, really well. So at the end of last... Thank you. So at the end of last year, I felt like, gosh, I should be really happy. But I felt a lot of unhappiness last year. So I was talking to a friend about it, and she said, well, what to you is happiness? And I said, well, happiness is a warm butt. Uh-uh. But then when I started to think about it, I was like, no, you know what? When I really examine my choices and some of these predicaments I get in, a lot of the unhappiness in my life also comes from my pursuit of butts. You see, because I am a man, right? 
I have testosterone coursing through my system. And the thing about us guys is, it might sound completely insane. It might sound like, no, this is only the thing that an animal would do. But guys are actually quite capable of kind of forgetting, kind of losing touch with the simple and obvious fact that in order to attain a butt, you have to deal with a human being that is attached to it. So sometimes it's a pretty good idea to like start to get to know someone, right? And, and like learn how to like empathize with them, learn what you have in common, learn from what you don't have in common, learn to share and learn to love, right? Something that can actually love you back because it's probably not the case that the truth is inside our butts. <laughs> However, you might just find it in someone's eyes. So I want to make that my new obsession of 2015. But let's hope there's some butts along the way. <laughs> All right, I want to bring up to the stage our first storyteller. Now, he is going to be here tomorrow night at 9.30, along with Jackie Cation. They're doing a show called The Dork Forest slash Ding Donger Matt Bronger. <laughs> he also has a wonderful special that he shot here at the Bell House that's going to be on Comedy Central on February 6th. Please welcome to the stage, Matt Bronger! Thanks, gang. Give it up for Kevin, would you? Keep it going a little bit. All right. Here we are. But I've never, ever told this story in public, and I'm fucking horrified. Um, but that's what the show's about, and I believe comedy is about honesty. Um, just to start, let's, let's get real honest right now. I have a hemorrhoid right fucking now. Right now. Talk about butts, huh? Yeah. Dig it. This has a hemorrhoid. Let's cut that from the podcast. Um, guys, I've always uh, loved a sweet round caboose. Always. Um, I don't understand guys that don't. I read a, an article about a hairdresser that was kind of a modern day Warren Beatty and shampoo guy who uh, slept with a bunch of gals. And they asked him if he had a, a girl that was like an old flame or something. And he was just like, he's like, yeah, oh, I miss, uh, I forget the name, something exotic. And he was like, her ass was that big. He just did this those listening, I'm just holding about an inch of space between my thumb and forefinger. And I just thought, ugh. Like, so you like kids. You're into kids. Okay, great. You like a child's butt. I, just, I don't get it why you wouldn't like a healthy bottom. Um, and this is the story about the time I met a gal with a healthy bottom and we had an evening that ended in horrific disaster. Uh, I used to wait tables in Chicago uh, for about six years. Yeah, great city. Um, and, but it was, I was at a place called Rock Bottom Brewery, which is, uh, you know it, we all know it. It's like, it's like if Chili's made their own beer is really what it is. And it was, a, it was a great place to work though. I met a lot of great people that I'm still friends with and it was you know, a great time. But those of you who work in the restaurant business or have, you know it's very incestuous. 
everybody's always fucking each other because you basically have the same schedule. Like, you know, your night owls, you're out late when you're done and then you, you keep drinking and then people just hook up with each other and it's just like, well, fucking punch in and go, I can't believe I was in you last night. <laughs> All right, let's start. I'm your bar back. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, whichever way it goes, but it's, it's an understood thing. It's a you know, fraternal, sororal order. Sororal, is that a word? Um, thanks for the yeah. I love the, the straight ahead. Yeah, it is. Um, I need that in my life. I'm a mess. But one night, I got off early and uh, went drinking, and I believe it was like a Thursday or a Friday, and uh, you know, that never happened, that I'd get off that early. We just, it was a real slow night. My friend uh, was working. This is a person that I had never hooked up with, and she was uh, mostly because she was my, also my other friend's girlfriend. And I got, <laughs> don't cross the streams, right? So I, I, went, I went out to have a couple drinks by myself, pregame it, as the kids say. And um, I told him where I was going to end up. And I'd, I'd had a couple drinks and a shot or two. I was a real maniac back then. I think I was like uh, 26, 27. She shows up with uh, some other friends of ours, mutual friends, and her uh, brother and sister. And this friend of mine I mentioned had a sweet, sweet, sweet bottom. And her sisters eclipsed it in a magical way that I still look back on and just go, mwah, to the heavens. Um, and they showed up and I was like, oh, who's this? And I did that thing of like, Will. Like, you know that, that move you do where you just side someone out to get around somebody? I did that, but it's like in a jokey, but so fucking not jokey way. So obvious I'm really into her. She and I hit it off. And we were joking, but then became real like together where uh, she's like, oh, you know, uh, uh, I, like, I like a tall man. Uh, what's your dick like? And I'm like, not great, but I love your bottom. And we laughed. All of that's true. We're loving the fact that we're enjoying each other's company like this, right? Like we feel like an island in and of ourselves because other people I've drank with, I've had fun with and all this jazz, but this is a new person. We're new people for each other. I'm like, let's hit some other bars. And so I'm taking them to like the bars that I loved. I lived on the north side of Chicago at the time. And she and I were doing this thing with the, the shots around the arms together, the toast, and uh, just getting hammered. And we're at that level of drunkenness where you're just like, why doesn't everyone just love each other openly? <laughs> AKA, let's make out at the bar in front of everyone, even though we don't, <laughs> they don't know us, and we have a lot of friends here uh, that are with us, we can horrifically embarrass. So she and I start just crashing up derby kissing, like just smashing our mouths into each other, eating each other's faces, that thing, where you're not groping each other's bodies, but you're kind of tonguing each other's eyes and ears. Just, ah, 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 ah. And you gotta understand, I had just gotten out of, like months before, a relationship that was really strong. It was like a two year, two and a half year relationship. You know, I was, I was kind of on this, in this still awkward stage of, where do I go now? Because I'm a single guy, AKA creepy as fuck, and I'm aware of it. So, to have someone give me this kind of attention who was beautiful and had a great body, like it was magical. And uh, she, she and I just hit it off. Anyway, so we're making out to the point where our friends kept going. This one friend of mine kept going. He'd be talking and then middle, middle conversation, I'd hear him go, come on, like at us. <laughs> come on, just different intonations. Come on, man. And we'd break and then just swim right back toward each other and keep making out. 
And uh, remember, her sister and brother are there. And they know that she and I have just met. And this is like the fourth bar. And they're hammered, so they don't really care. But then, in a kind of bon voyage slash, get the fuck out of here, you guys are creeping everybody out, they shoved us out into a waiting cab. Shoved us out the door, like, go, go, go. And we're just like laughing, like, ha ha, look at us. Like I said, why doesn't everyone love each other kind of thing? We're holding hands. I understand those Vegas stories of waking up married after that night, you know, just like, why not? Who cares? Tomorrow's not a real thing. So they get us outside, and we're being loaded into a cab. For some reason, I thought this was hilarious. I got the other side, I put her in the cab like a gentleman, ran to the other side of the cab, opened the door, and went, I have herpes, and got into the cab. Her brother and sister are right there. I just thought that was so funny because they're all like, we know, go fuck, we know, get out of here. And so to make fun of that, I yelled that I have herpes and I do not have herpes. I just yelled that and got in the cab. So we went to a bar, another bar we should not have gone to. We should have just had sex in the cab and bought the cab and fell asleep in the cab. We were so hammered. But we went to this bar that's right near my place, was right near my place, it was a bar that was open till 4 a.m. We didn't make it that late. We made it till maybe midnight, maybe 12.30. Started real early, started real early. Thank God I didn't see anyone else I knew that was trying to keep me out, that thing. But I just remember drinking Jack and Cokes, and I swear to God, the Jack was leaving my mouth and going back into the Coke, like, no, just leaving my mouth. No, just sliding out as I'd sip it because it just tasted like antifreeze at that point. My body was rejecting it. And we stumbled upstairs to my place and began, you know, kind of trying to make out but failing. And we got our clothes off, we got naked, and nothing we did could possibly be considered sex. Like nothing. <laughs> just we might as well just been slap boxing in my living room. <laughs> like nothing was sexual, just trying but failing like an alien that saw one porn and was trying to show the other aliens how human beings have sex. He grabs a breast and then her foot and then he falls down <laughs> off the bed. He gets back up on the bed laughing, but she's asleep. Then she wakes up. She grabs his balls. Like, it's a blur. Like we became a weird smeared impressionist painting of sexual activity. And we didn't, we both just fell, we fell asleep, fell asleep. That's all I know. We fell asleep together, naked. Next thing I know, I feel the sheet getting pulled from my body and I'm half awake. This is Chicago where it gets brutally cold and the, and the sheet comes off me and I was like, what the fuck? And I kind of went back to sleep, but then woke up when I heard someone in the hallway walking with a kind of stumbling gait and I heard a loud thump and I got up and was like, she's gone. So are my sheets. What's happening? And I go out in the hallway, and she's sitting against the wall, naked and unconscious, and just peeing. Just urine is just coming out of her like a spreading puddle through her splayed legs. And I did not live alone. Let me say that right now. I had a roommate down the hall. And I felt so bad for her. 
And luckily, I have a little bit of size, strength, and leverage. So I got in her armpits and I did the fireman lift, carried her to the bathroom, still peeing, still peeing. <laughs> just urine coming out. And I set her on the bathtub. And I can't remember if I balanced her backwards so she wouldn't fall forward or if she kind of came to enough to hold the wall. I was hammered too. And I go out in the hallway and I cleaned up the urine and I went back into bed and just waited for her. And she comes back in the room stone sober all of a sudden. Like just peed out all of the booze. Stone sober. And she's just holding her head and she just says, I am so fucking embarrassed. And I said, it's no big deal. We're both hammered. It could have happened to either one of us. It's fine, okay? And I didn't tell her how much I was praying to any God that may exist when I was lifting her, just looking down the hall like, don't wake up, roommate. Do not. Nate, stay in there. Nate, don't. Because you imagine him opening the door and just seeing me naked, her naked. She's peeing. I'm holding her in the air. What could I possibly have said? No, nah, this is what I'm into, bro. Go back in your room. Be cool. We're in love. Just painting the floor with her urine. It was one of those whoo moments. Like, thank God, thank God. He still doesn't know this happened, by the way. And so I, I'm back. She says, I'm so fucking embarrassed. And I said, don't worry about it. And I just said, come back to bed. Come here. We held each other and went back to sleep together. And we went on several more dates and it ended amiably, and we laugh about that night. Uh, we, we did, I haven't seen her in years. I, this was like 16 years ago. But it was a fine and happy memory, though horrifically embarrassed thing at the time, because, you know, the thing is, over the course of a relationship, you find out everything about each other and all the disgusting stuff, right? But it shouldn't happen on a one-night stand. And that's why I felt bad for her. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing she does not know that I know. Maybe she doesn't know this at all. But the kicker is when she came back to bed, I had changed the sheets because she didn't just pee. She also pooed a little. She pooed a little bit. She pooed a little bit while she was sitting on the toilet. So I took those sheets, balled them up, went out back on the classic wooden walk down Chicago uh, porch and threw it right in the trash naked. <laughs> and thank God the trash was open. I didn't have to run down two flights. But I still wonder if there was someone in an apartment just looking out the window and just a naked drunk man stumbling out, just throwing a pile of sheets. And him just doing the classic Chicago, like, nah, I didn't see nothing. I didn't see nothing. Thing. But uh, I don't know how to end it, but that's the story and butts. Matt Bronger! So very much of what happens in that story uh, would also happen at that kink camp that I go to. As long as you negotiate it first and you don't get shy bladder or bowels. <laughs> but it takes some planning. It takes some planning. Uh, our next guest, she is the other person who is on that show tomorrow night at 9.30 at Fontana's. 
for Podfest. I love her so dearly. She's been on risk many times. I love voices, and she has the greatest voice. Uh, she is the host of the Dork Forest podcast. That's what's happening at 9.30 at Fontana's tomorrow. You can find her at JackieCation.com. Please welcome to the stage, Jackie Cation! <laughs> Yeah, I'm not telling that story. Holy shit. Okay, so when Kevin asked me to do this, I literally, I wrote back to him uh, in the email and I said, really, people are going to be talking about their asses? And he goes, what? No, 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 whatever, whatever. I don't care. Like he hadn't brought it up. And it's called risk. So you clearly, you want to talk about the thing you have no interest in talking about. So I will be talking about my ass. Yeah, yeah. Last year, I released a comedy special, an hour-long comedy special, available on my website, uh, that I paid for, that I paid for. Four cameras, HD. That's right, ready for YouTube to HBO, because I was told that Netflix was looking for content. No. Uh... Not from this one. Not so far. Not so far. Uh, so you'd go to my website, spend a nickel, and uh, go look at it. Anyway, but um, I had final word on all the editing, and I can tell jokes. I can tell what the audio should look like. But I watched these three shows, and my only edit, the only note I could give the director who was editing the whole thing, I just said, try not to show my ass, I guess. Because I never... I never think about my ass. I never think about my body. I never... The name of my special, by the way, is This Will Make an Excellent Horcrux. <laughs> Which is very funny. You are correct. 37 people that have read Harry Potter. Um, because my soul is in it. That's why. Because it's a very personal album. <laughs> it's very funny. It's very... It's lovely. Anyway, uh, but I don't talk about my body at all because I don't ever... Ta- I, I often open up my show when I do stand-up with um, I Am Overweight... You may consider that addressed. That's the first line that I often open my show because I don't have any jokes about my weight um, because I am overweight according to television and um, not according to America, but uh, according to television. And I would like to be fucked up skinny. We all want to be fucked up skinny. But here's the thing. I... I can't, I've never written the definitive fat joke, so I don't want to just do any goddamn fat joke because it seems self-deprecating and vaguely pointless, and so I never, I, I haven't really ever gone there. But I have gone there in a live situation. You know, when you first start doing stand-up comedy, you talk about anything. You talk, you throw, you metaphorical shit at the wall, hoping something will stick. I've actually seen guys uh, throw actual poop at the wall. Never funny, never funny. <laughs> Yet. Keep writing, gentlemen, keep writing. But so when, but when a heckler yells something at me, sometimes they yell mean things at me, uh, I am willing to, I usually run with it. I run with it, I, I say something mean about myself or that person, and I will go as far as I have to go. And luckily, I'm not famous and nobody films me and then I'm not hated. So it's fine. But um, in my first year of doing stand-up, I got a chance to do stand-up at my university, for example. Uh, university of Wisconsin-Madison. Very exciting, very exciting. And uh, I was supposedly supposed to perform open for a, an improv troupe from Chicago. And unbeknownst to both of us, they changed it that I was now going to be doing 15 minutes of stand-up comedy before a cover band, but they didn't tell the band. 
1985, they had just raised the drinking age to 19. They were about to raise it to 21. So in 1985 at the University of Wisconsin, everyone was as drunk as they possibly could be all of the time because it was about to be taken away from them. (laughs) So six o'clock in the student union on a Friday, everyone's been drinking since noon. The band, the cover band, which doesn't know they have an opening act, goes up, warms up, genuinely plays the song Twist and Shout. Someone tells them, oh, there's like an opening act. And the guy goes, oh, there's an opening act? Oh, we're so sorry. Uh, what's Into the mic, what's your name? What do you do? And then he goes, oh, it's comedy. It's comedy. Jackie Cashin, come on up. And uh, so nobody, nobody needed to see that. 300 drunken college kids certainly did not need it. And so I did... What was I was one year into stand-up comedy. I did my sort of nascent family anecdotal it and uh, and some Marxist-Leninist jokes that I was working on. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> to, I didn't go well. It did not go well. It did not. <laughs> to the point at which uh, a pile of uh, frat boys, just a pile of haircuts over on the side, uh, started chanting, "Lose weight! Lose weight! Lose weight!" Right, right. A lot of people run screaming into the night. Uh, not me, not me. I, uh, I chose to make fun of them, but I am not the hero of this story because the only way, because I just started doing stand-up comedy, so I, I, the way I made fun of them, mm, I made fun of their girlfriends. Making me a giant asshat as well, right? Complete, full circle. So I said, you guys probably go out with sorority bitches. Yeah, good writing, good writing. Anyway... At which point, the women, uh, thus uh, pointed out, crumpled up their popcorn bags and their soda cups and whipped them at me. And uh, so now I'm standing on stage, and uh, popcorn bags, soda pop- Anyway, so, uh, and I just, uh, and I don't blame them. I think that they were shrewd to do it, quite honestly. Uh, not lethal. And uh, so, but I, I, I tap my, my watch and I go, you know, if I do another seven minutes, they have to pay me. So uh, I'll be up here, talk amongst yourselves. And, um, and then it ended well. A stoner in the front row handed me a joint and it was fine. But um, I have looked like this. This, this is, uh, I've looked like some version of this. I weigh probably 190, right? I weigh, I'm five foot four. Too much info, too much info. But Kevin told me it's a podcast, so I gotta describe myself. Anyway. <laughs> I'm like, just fucking Google image me for the... Anyway, what else do you need to know? How old I am? Cut me in half. Count the fucking rings. Anyway, so... <laughs> but I've looked like some version of this, right? Since I was 16 years old. Give or take like 30 pounds, this is what I've always looked like. And as a heckler, an audience, or even like people, you aren't going to make me feel worse about my body than my stepmother did or my father did. Not a chance in hell. I didn't even know that I had body images. I always assumed that my body was what it was, which is my stepmother for my, yeah, whatever. It's, uh, I didn't, I, and I have, I have relatively large breasts that I never have out. I mean, they're, they're for private use is what they've always been. And I never thought that they were conducive to stand-up. I'm sure that they would have been if I had used them correctly, but I just, I, I was busy going, mm, this has been what it's like since I was 16, I'll be over here. So it's fine. And my stepmother was a hairdresser, so I had a shag haircut for a long time. Lady mullet, very, very glamorous. Uh, but and when I was, see, because my body was essentially, it was to be mocked. 
by my father. My father mocked all of us openly, uh, and what he mocked me about was about my body. And my stepmother, despair, that's what uh, my stepmother was despairing of. She thought that I could never get my shit together. And I just eventually just learned to accept it, and it was fine. I was like, oh, well, this is what I look like, and it'll be fine. So when I was 14, I remember hearing uh, that this one girl in my, in, my, in my class had the perfect butt. The perfect butt. And I, my mind was blown. I left gym class, and uh, I had to go find Kathy Merrick in class and look at her ass. And I was already a weird kid, and now I'm circling some poor woman, some poor child woman, uh, looking at her ass. <laughs> she was a good-looking person in any case. Her sisters, by the way, had the exact same butt, the same awesome butt. There was all this talk about how great the Merrick sisters' asses were uh, when I was 14 for some reason. And... Um, and I was trying to figure out what Jim, this guy Jim, loved about her ass. And she was good looking, and her mom, I believe, also a hairdresser, but she looked kind of 60s, kind of pale, good skin, long hair. But, you know, she had, what I realize now, is a perfectly proportioned ass, like what you're really looking for in the world of butt, right? Skinny waist, flared hips, nicely rounded cheeks, tapered, reasonably shaped legs. Very weird to define it out loud, but I think that we all know what I'm talking about. Um, I mostly, and I, my ass, I never look at myself from the back. I only look at myself pretty much in the mirror, just my head. I brush my teeth, I change my clothes, I wash, I bathe. I do all the things. I put on makeup sometimes, not this evening, but sometimes. And, and I kind of use other people as a mirror. Like if my hair isn't brushed in the back or my clothes are wrinkled or I've leaned on something, I get that information from the outside. <laughs> It isn't ideal, but, um, and even though I never do talk about this stuff on stage, people are very full of information to me. Just, I am very approachable, and they like me, and so they would like to somehow uh, affect change with what is happening in front of them. They don't like what they're looking at, they think it's sad, and they'd like to talk to me about it. Four months ago, a woman at a show came up to me afterwards and said, you shouldn't eat after 7 p.m. That was unsolicited. That didn't, uh, I didn't ask for that. And that was the first thing she said to me. And then she said, oh, and you're really, really funny. Really funny. And I was like, hmm, thank you. And uh, I don't, whatever, like paleo, raw, vegan, vegetarian, macrobiotic, it's all been explained to me in great detail. And ask, by the way, a lot about working out. And I currently do not work out. Uh, I have in the past. Uh, I've tried. You know those tapes from the 90s, Buns of Steel? I did those. I did those. So I just got talked into those. And I got talked into joining a gym. For more than 10 years, I was a member of a gym, Bally's. And I'd go off and on for 10 years or so and sit and, and walk and even run on a treadmill in a disgusting, not fun, sweaty, news-showing gym. And, um, and I'd lose some weight. And then I joined Weight Watchers. People said, you should join Weight Watchers and write down every bite you eat. So I did. I did that too. And uh, I lost some weight. I never lost all of the weight that I was supposed to lose according uh, to my family. The, my cousin's very good looking. Uh, so uh, I'm never going to look like that, turns out. And uh, so... and. I knew I was bored with the gym. I knew I was bored with eating salads. So as I tend to do here in America to deal with this stuff, I am like Oprah. And I pull out my credit card and I pay for things. That's what I do. That's what we all do. We pay for things. I paid for, for a dude to personally trade me. 
And uh, that was painful. That was painful. My back still hasn't uh, recovered from his enthusiastic, not fun training. So, uh, and people... Everyone insists that you have to find the exercise that you think is fun. And I've gotten a lot of input that I need to take a class because that's where the fun is. The fun is in a class. I don't know how that's more fun than not taking a class, quite honestly, but it's fine. Um, The funnest part of taking a class seems to be the buying of fancy pants and shoes. (laughs) The only thing I'm working out here is my credit rating. There seems to be a lot of shelling out of cash and then I, I just work around 30 pounds. So it's very weird to me. And then... Um, I just, I know I've drifted off my ass. And uh, by the way, I've drifted off my ass. Someone write that song. We're in Brooklyn. <laughs> Please write a song with the lyrics, I've drifted off my ass. Uh, and I'm still, I'm still susceptible to society, right? Like I'm not a dead person. I, I'm available. But I'm trying to relearn what I learned as a child, that I'm going to look like this. You can like it, you can not like it, you can book it, you can not book it, you can fuck it. Uh, You can try to fuck it, you can want to fuck it, you can not want to fuck it, and that's fine. Uh, I will go along with my life. I will continue to be internally uncomfortable and insecure, and secretly I will work on it. I will work on it, because I am alive. Because it's in the air, It's it's in the water of our very, very, very privileged life. Recently, I was told that I could uh, throw money at it again. I was told that for $5,000 that I do not have, I could jumpstart. Let me get this right. Here we go. Let's do it. Let's find it. I, I could jumpstart weight loss, anti-aging, and detox. That's right. Five grand. I could jumpstart it. One week, $5,000. I could also go to Paris and eat a croissant every day. Yeah. I'll be going to Paris if I ever have $5,000. And I will. I will save $5,000 specifically to go to Paris and not go to grown-up lady fat camp. So, um... Because I'm tempted to do it. We're all tempted to spend money on this bullshit. And then when I get any sort of distance, when I get any sort of perspective, I genuinely feel like fucking Marie Antoinette. I feel like, oh my God, there are people dying somewhere. I'm thinking about not eating and someone making me not eat. I'm going to hire someone to slap a sandwich out of my face. Uh, It just, it feels... Very rude. Very, very rude. But I do want to be thin and fabulous, and uh, I want to look like Annette Benning. My greatest problem with looking like Annette Benning in 1995 is that I've never looked like Annette Benning. <laughs> but no one, uh, no one gets to boss me about it. You can't boss me about it. You can't uh, mock me or tell me your theory of how I can fix it, because I'm a grown adult lady with access to magazines and television. I've heard all the theories. I'm fine. I'm fine as I am. I'm fine as I am. As far as you know, I am fine as I am. Now, the last time my father made a crack about my weight was probably 20 years ago. 20 years ago. We were in the car. I've been doing stand-up for about probably five, six years. And um, we were in the car and he made some crack. I don't even remember what the crack was. And I said, yeah, you gotta, you gotta make, stop making comments about my weight, Dad. It actually hurts my feelings. And he goes, well, you know, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just kidding. And I said, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, what I'm saying is that it hurts my feelings and you got to stop doing it. Because if you do it again, I'm going to make fun of you and I do it for a living. And uh, it's really going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes, well, you know, I'm just kidding. And I said, right, right. I know that. I know that. Uh, what I'm saying is that you got to stop it because it hurts my feelings. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to hurt your feelings. And that's how it's going to go. And there was this pause, and he goes, all right, all right. 
Then there was this other pause, and he goes, I was just kidding. And I let him have that. I let him have that, because he has not said word one in the last 20 years. And I told a friend of mine that story, and she goes, what? You have a parent that stopped doing something? (laughs) Parents never hear, what? How have you done that? I was like, well, he knew I wasn't kidding. And she goes, yeah, that, no, you're lucky. (laughs) Thanks a lot, you guys. Hey guys, we're just going to take a super quick pause now to hear about the new show from our network, Maximum Fun. Hey, this is Pop Rocket. We're your source for all pop culture information. It's an intellectual and incredibly snark-filled discussion about pop culture by five cranky Hollywood 30-somethings. No name-calling, no rudeness, just straight talk and a lot of role-play. I'm only 30-something for another year. Me too. And I don't (laughs) tell anybody I'm 30-something. Pop Rocket comes out every week from MaximumFun.org. Check it out, guys. Okay, now back to Risk, live at NYC PodFest. (laughs) Uh, Just the subject of parents and buds just reminded me of something that just happened over Christmas. I have, uh, they say you want what you haven't got. The, The reason I'm so obsessed with buds, I've always thought one of them at least, is that I don't have one. I have what I call a lack thereof. And my mom is at, <laughs> a little support for lack thereof. Um, my mom is at that. She's 76 and she's starting to really lose her memory. Uh, and uh, over Christmas, she three times she said to me, your pants hang low on you, you know? And I was like, yeah, mom, I, I have no butt, you know? I mean, when I was younger, she was very aware of this and we would shop to try to get stuff that didn't, I should wear suspenders is what it boils down to. If I'm in a hurry, I may very well lose my pants. Um, but she said it three times and finally I was like, mom, I have a lack thereof. And this Christmas, you seem to be looking at it quite a lot. Uh, so yeah, there, I, I, I got the Buns of Steel stuff in the 90s as well. And uh, you know, it's, I, it's, it's bullshit. Fuck that. I'm just going to find it elsewhere. Look for butts outside your own. <laughs> All right, our next guest, she was so wonderful when she did our Los Angeles version of the show. And she is actually not a Los Angeles. She is here in New York City. In fact, she is a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live. Please welcome the stage, Sashir Zamira. I grew up in a military family. From the time when I was born till I was 10 years old, we moved around to a different city every two years. And one of those cities was Hampton, Virginia, where I spent my first and second grade at Mary Atkins Christian School. And my parents really didn't like instill Christian values in me that hard. Like we went to church, that was all important. The Jesus stuff was like, all right, yeah, pay attention to that. But most importantly, be good. Like, they really wanted me to be good, a good person, so I could, like, follow rules and be, like, a good civilian of society. 
my mom would instill these rules in, in me at a very young age. Like there was like a list of things I had to do in life to like be good. Like I had to finish school, and then when I finish, go to college. And then after you finish college, get your masters. And after you do that, get a job. And then you can start dating men. <laughs> and then after that, you can get married. And then you have sex. <laughs> And then after that, you can get a dog. <laughs> and then you can have kids. Like, there was a whole order. She really stressed the dog thing. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get a dog before you have kids. I guess, because you just want to make sure you don't fuck up. <laughs> and my mom did have a dog for a long time before she had me, so I guess she was like, that's true. <laughs> it works. <laughs> So I had those rules like drilled into my head and they sent me to a Christian school where more rules would be drilled into my head. And this school had a lot of structure. Like we started every day with prayer. We learned all these Bible stories. And for punishment, they had a paddling system. Yeah, I think it's illegal. <laughs> Everywhere. But I went to school in the South at the time, and th this was the early 90s, and I think maybe laws took a longer time to get down there. <laughs> so they still paddled students when I was there, and they would do it whenever you were bad, and being bad was subjective to the teacher that you had. And so I just tried my hardest to be good, so I never got paddled. In my first grade class, I had, my best friend was Lauren White, and we would always chat a bunch in class. People called us the chatterboxes. And one day Lauren got in trouble. I can't remember the reason, but she had to go to the paddling room. There was a room specifically designed for paddling. And I hadn't seen it, and we didn't really know what it was about, but we kind of like rolled our eyes like, okay, this is something that Lauren will have to entertain for a few minutes, and then she'll come back and we'll get back to chatting. So she went away to the paddling room. I'm not sure how long she was gone, but when she came back, she was just all tears, like made of tears, just crying her eyes out. And I was scared, because I had never seen her or anyone cry this hard before. And I was like, what, what happened in that room? What did they do to you? And she couldn't it, like, actually explain, because she was doing that like breathe, cry thing where she couldn't get the words out. Like, they hit me. Like, couldn't get it out. And I was like, oh, I will never go to the paddling room. I don't ever want that to happen to me. So I tried my hardest to be good, but that didn't last very long, because uh, it did happen to me. The <laughs> first time I got paddled, I kind of deserved it. Um, I was like part of this after-school program that where kids, if your parents got out late, they couldn't pick you up right after school. You had to like wait and just have more school. So I, that's what I did. And so school let out, and one of my friends, Brandon, left his spelling book on his desk. And I was like, oh, I don't want him to get his spelling book thrown away. So I'll just keep it for him and bring it tomorrow so that it'll be safe. And some bratty girl saw this whole thing. She was like, some like, she, like a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory character, like just like, uh, like just always, uh, just so annoying. She saw me pick up Brandon's book and was like, um, why do you have Brandon's book? And I was like, oh, cause I'm gonna give it to him tomorrow. I wanna keep it safe. And she was like, you probably have a crush on Brandon. And I was like, no, I'm six. I don't have a crush on anybody. <laughs> I don't think like that right now. 
But she wouldn't believe me. She kept pushing it. It was like, no, you have a crush on Brandon. You like him. And then kept making fun of me for the rest of the day. And then even when we were outside playing, she would like keep making fun of me. And it got to the point where she was behind me. She came up behind me. I could feel her presence, her stinky presence. And she <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder. And she didn't even have to say anything. I knew she was gonna say something about Brandon. So like, I didn't give her the chance to say anything. I just turned around and slapped her across the face. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I felt good about it, but our teacher did not. Her glasses flew off. Her face was beet red. She was crying and crying, screaming, and threatening to get her parents to sue me. (laughs) It was a whole thing, and then I got led to the paddling room. And the person who's in charge of the paddling was Miss Holt. She's a second grade teacher. I was in first grade, so this was like very intimidating. And Miss Holt was this very tall, very thin, white-haired woman and looking back I think like she was so frail like it must have taken all of her energy (laughs) just to hold that paddle but at the time it was terrifying she was like oh she's a witch she's scary this is all threatening to me and she like grabbed me by the arm and we're walking down this long hallway and we get into this room and again this is from a six year old's memory but what I remember is just a black room with no windows and one chair in the middle with a light shone on it (laughs) and then we had to lean over the chair and Miss Holt would paddle us with this like thick wood like fraternity style paddle Again, this is from a six-year-old's brain. (laughs) I don't know if that's actually what it looked like, but that's what it felt like. I mean, the whole anticipation and buildup of all of this was the scariest part of it. I don't even know if she actually hit me that hard. Probably not. She could have flicked me on the forehead and I would have thought the world was ending. Like, Christians are really good at instilling fear in people, so that's what I was feeling. And she, like, paddles my bottom three times and then tears start coming. And it's just like, oh, this is the worst. I never want to hit another person again. And then I don't. So time goes by and then I get paddled again because I said the word damn in class. I know. (laughs) I think it was something stupid too. Like I missed the sign up on some field trip or something and I was like, damn. (laughs) And my teacher was like, to the paddling room. And Miss Holt drags me down the hallway again and then paddles me and then tells my parents that I said the word damn in class. And my mom asked me, where did you learn this word? And I said, Roseanne. (laughs) Roseanne was my favorite TV show on Nick at Night. And I guess I heard her say damn and I just like said it out loud. I've heard damn other places too, but like that was the first thing that came to mind. I wish I didn't say that though because then they banned me from watching Roseanne. And I was like, this is unfair. This is one of the most feminist shows on TV right now and you're gonna take that from me? I need this. I wasn't learning a lesson. They didn't teach me why that word was bad. They just took a good thing away from me. And so I started feeling like indignant to these old paddling things and I just started to realize that they were just built out of fear. 
And my mom would like do the same thing, but like much better than the school. She would like pull me aside and we would have discussions whenever I was in trouble, which was so scary. I hated that word. Like, do you want to have a discussion? No. No, I do not. And discussions meant that she just put her face really close to my face and in low tones told me what she would do to me. <laughs> and that was scarier than anything. If you don't sit down right now, I'm going to sit down for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know what that means, but it's scary. She's going to sit down for me. <laughs> So I never wanted a discussion. But paddling seemed less scarier than that. The last time I got paddled, it was for talking too much. I was uh, chit-chatting away with my chatterbox best friend. And the teacher, I guess, silenced us one too many times and said, all right, that's enough talking. Off to the paddling room. And this time, I actually didn't feel fear. I was like, wait, this is wrong. This was the first time I was like, this is actually unjust. Like, you're just silencing me for no reason. We're not doing anything. We're not having class. I'm just talking. You don't want to hear it anymore. Just because you don't want to hear me talk anymore doesn't mean I have to stop speaking. So that's when I started feeling, like, indignant about everything. That's really the start of it. And Ms. Holt took me to the paddling room, and she paddled me three times. And in my mind, I willed myself not to cry. I was like, I will not give her anything. <laughs> they're not gonna put one over on me and try to win and think that they have power in the situation because I know they're wrong and I have a right to speak. So I'm not gonna cry. You can say I'm bad if you want to, but you're not getting anything out of me. And then I went back to the classroom, sat down, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, are you okay? What happened, did she battle you? And I'm like, yeah, 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 she did. <laughs> she paddled me. And I don't care. <laughs> and that's the last time I got paddled. I tried my best to be good, but like I really didn't care. And then we moved to California later, and I went, started going to public schools, which is much different. <laughs> much different from Christian schools. A lot less structure, but, but still some good kids. And I say relatively good in comparison. But what I did get out of going to this Christian school, like I didn't get all the values that they were trying to teach me, but I did learn how to stand up for myself and how to feel self-pride that someone can't take away from me. And I know that those aren't the lessons they were trying to teach me, but that's definitely what I learned. All right, thank you very much. reminded me of uh, that I, a little story that I told within that episode, uh, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. The first time that I went to this kink camp that I sometimes now teach at, I, I, I was erotically spanked for the very first time. There was this event where you sign up on a piece of paper to spend 15 minutes having a professional dominatrix or dom man uh, 
just do one thing to you, you know, uh, uh, over and over for 15 minutes. And I had never been spanked. And, and uh, th- this older woman who just exuded this really motherly, uh, you know, like, I don't know, so there's something I, I really trusted her and she seemed to really know her stuff about spanking. So I signed up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And so I had to take my pants down and get on this uh, spanking bench, right? And she started off very, very uh, lightly, yeah, like, like you're supposed to do. It's kind of like um, uh, you're warming up. You're warming up. And I started to feel this weird thing going on in me. We had discussed like safe words in case things went awry. And she's warming up and she's warming up and it's getting harder and harder. And then she's like, all right, I'm going to bring out the wooden paddle. And she gives me a thwack and suddenly... It triggered this intense memory of being like about seven years old and being paddled by my mom. And it was not good. (laughs) Not good. It was like, oh my God. But I did not want to use a safe word because I was a newbie and newbies always make this mistake of, oh, I don't really, maybe I shouldn't say that. So I I went through with it and it was kind of miserable and psychologically distressing. And then afterwards I like smiled and I was like, thanks so much. That was really nice. And then I went home and I recorded Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And ever since then, she's like, you told a story about me on your podcast where you, th- you acted like you liked that, but you hated that. And I'm like, oh, it wasn't you, but it actually kind of was. She, she reminded me of my mom. So anyway, what I've learned is if I'm going to be spanked, it should probably be by a uh, very attractive young man. <laughs> And wood, it, you know, stick to the leather stuff. I mean, the wood is just too rough. All right. Our next storyteller. I come out here to instill these little lessons. When the subject is butts, I can't help but preach. Uh, okay. Our next storyteller, he has been on Letterman many, many, many times. He is like one of the favorites there. Uh, he has also been on the amazing show, Louie, and he is just one of the greats, one of the veterans around town. So it's a thrill to finally have him on the show. Please welcome the stage, Eddie Brill! I love how they said no notes, but they put a music stand up here for us. That's nice. You know, it's funny. I can relate to all the stories because I, I was born in Brooklyn and I moved to Florida. I was like, whoo, okay. And uh, that's not the Brooklyn chant. That's more like Alabama, you know, but that was good. Yeah, whoo, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. Whoo, you don't hear that. Uh, <laughs> but I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in Florida, South Florida. Okay. There's a couple of Floridians there freezing. And... Uh, and I got my ass paddled all the time. And then Jackie, you know, I had the weight thing in school. And, and Matt, I, I took a shit in his bed, too. So that worked out that I can relate to all the comics who performed here at this. It's funny, when they called me to do this, they said, well, you can do a butt story, but don't do a butt story. I'm like, what the fuck? What kind of rule is that? It's all the, the theme is butts, but don't, you don't have to do a butt story. So I sent a bunch of stories in to Kevin, and we had never met, and he said, no, all these other stories with butts and stuff, no fucking way, you gotta tell this story. 
And okay, I said, all right. Because it's very emotional and it's weird. It's a nightmare. Nightmare that happened in my life in real life. Uh, it was uh, back on uh, 1998, 99, this is kind of the era, the turn of the century. Isn't fun to say that even though it's 15 years ago. It's like, yeah, back in the turn of the century I was. But it was odd because in 1998, the internet was kind of new and we're all on it and it was kind of fun. It was AOL. Gling, gling, fling, gling, 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 gling. When the fuck is it gonna get online? Gling, gling, gling. You remember that AOL? And uh, there was, uh, and, and it was chat rooms. And at the, you know, and look, I, I, I wasn't dating anyone at the time. I thought this is a cool new virtual meeting place here, and it turned out to be so fucked because, <laughs> you know, uh, how what was it, like age, you know, sex, and whatever, and all that. Those three things, and yeah, 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 you go right. <laughs> age, sex, and language. They want to know what language you spoke. And, uh, and uh, so I did the, you know, and everyone's, oh, I'm 28, I'm 35, I'm a single female. And really, it was a bunch of 11-year-old boys who were just fucking, hey, say pussy, you know, and like, oh, pussy, and a bunch of old men are going, oh, say pussy, you know, like, and you're jacking off to some nine-year-old kid, you know, and he's like, you know. I wasn't jacking off, but some of us were, and I jack off all the time, but not then. This is not a story about jacking. Um, but it was weird. So, so I hated all the chat rooms, and all of us did, and, and uh, we had a bunch of great comedian friends that lived both in L.A. and New York, and we decided to come up with a chat room, because you could make your own, called Open Mic, and it would start at, uh, it was 10 at night in L.A., 1 in the morning in New York, and we'd all get online, and we'd talk about our gigs, and, you know, it was really fun. And uh, who'd you work with tonight? And did who, you know, this person stole a joke? Or it was all that kind of fun stuff <laughs> that comedians talk about. And then all of a sudden, people that weren't comedians filtered in. And I met a woman who came in, and she was very nice. And she wasn't somebody I was interested in dating, but it was kind of cool. And we moved over from the chat room to the AOL IM box. <laughs> and we, we talked a lot. And it was really kind of cool. I had pen pals as a kid. I had a lot. I, I loved that. I would, you know, people overseas. But this was something kind of like virtual and new and fun. And she was really nice. Wasn't my type. She sent me some pictures. They were a little blurry. You can already tell where the story's going here. They were blurry, but it didn't matter. She was lovely. She lived in Fresno, California. And I knew Tom Seaver of the Mets was from Fresno. That's all I fucking knew about Fresno. And that, you know, was in California. And... Then she had a son, and she lived with her mom, and it was very nice. And ever we talk often, we type often, and it was really fun. And uh, and then all these t things would happen. It was very Hallmarkian, you know, like her. Oh, the dog ran away. I'm like, oh, and I was there for her through the dog thing. The dog came back. Oh, the dog came back, and uh, I was having the time of my life with this Fresnoian, 28 female single, whatever divorced. I don't. There was no D's back then. Okay. So it was, it was kind of nice. And then she said she met a guy online, but he lived in her area. And I was like, oh, I was very excited for her, and it was really nice. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That goes on. Now I do a television show at the beginning of 1999. And it was Letterman. It was a really fun set. And I got a, 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 a IM from her. Hey, I saw you on Letterman. And it said that you're going to be in San Francisco at the Cobbs Comedy Club, if you've ever been to San Francisco. It was the best comedy club in the world. And uh, so I said, okay. She said, I want to come. I want to bring my boyfriend. I want you to meet him. Great. Work it out. She's going to come to the show. She shows up, and she is gorgeous. 
gorgeous. Why the blurry picture? I don't fucking know, you know? And really nice. And, and then, you know, being beautiful is, is really cool. Because men, I'll speak for myself. I'm, I like my visuals and I like to be attracted to somebody. But it's got to be a lot more than that. Because I grew up really with incredible women around me. My mom is the funniest and has the strongest backbone. And my aunts and my cousins, all women, they raise me. So I like to have someone who's pretty, but I want someone with a backbone. And this woman didn't seem like she had that backbone. And that's okay. I, I know you laugh. But that's, you know, you got to go with what you like. But when she showed up, I said, oh, fucking yeah. You know? And then her boyfriend showed up, and he was the fucking freak of the century. He was... He looked like he just got out from underneath a car where you change the oil. He even had a shirt, like a, a gas station shirt. You ever see those with the little circle around it, Mike? You know, what the, he wore the fucking gas station shirt. Did a three hour trip to, from Fresno to San Francisco. And, and he has black gunk under his fingers. He hasn't showered. I know, aw, oh, that's how I felt. I had the same emotion that you had there. Aw, oh, what the fuck is she doing with this creep? You know, she's nice and she's Hallmarkian and nice body and pretty and funny and fantastic and fun to hang out with. So I, I said, you know, but I'm gonna, what the fuck? You know, what am I gonna do? I'm not gonna change anything. So I invite them to dinner and we go to dinner and, and it's this incredible Chinese restaurant called Tai Chi. If you've been to San Francisco, it's one of the most incredible, delicious places. It's very humble and the food is great. So we go in there and she's bubbly, bubbly. Hey, it's so good to meet you. And he's like, you know, like he doesn't want to be part of this. He has no fucking want to be part of it. So she gets up to go to the bathroom and he's like, and I said, look, I'm not interested in your girlfriend. I know that you are boyfriend and girlfriend and I'm happy. He's like, he got even more uptight. No one had ever talked to him ever. And he didn't know how to handle it. So we go to the show. I have two shows that night on the first show there straight in the back, and Cobb's Comedy Club, which unfortunately is not the same club, it was in the cannery, it was beautiful, and it was intimate, and it was always great comics, and the guy who ran it put the best comics on the show together. I mean, every show, like me, Dana Gould, and Mark Marin, that was the fucking show. I mean, that's, this guy was so smart, but this was before those guys were famous and everything. So he was smart, and he always put good people together. And she was sitting in the back, and weirdly enough, right straight back, but there was lights just on their table, like it was a movie, just for me to see. She was like, smiling and he's like <laughs> he really doesn't want to be here show's over she says so nice to meet you he doesn't give me eye contact and she said i'll call you tomorrow we'll have breakfast blah so the next morning phone call he doesn't want me to have breakfast with you we're going home now I'm like i fucking knew that right away <laughs> surprised to see he didn't drive home right away but he probably had to change the oil before he left you know <laughs> so anyway so they take off four months later i get a phone call Hey, what's going on? You know, uh, how you doing? I want to come to New York. I've never been to New York. I always thought it'd be great to come to New York. And, uh, and she, I says, well, you know, I'll be your, your guide and tell you which way you guys can go. And she says, oh, no, I'm not seeing that guy anymore. I broke up with him, and I want to come see you. Yeah, okay. I'm all right with that. <laughs> I had never, ever done that where I flew someone or they, she paid for the tickets, but I was getting all these things for us to do. And I had never done that or had someone stay at my house I didn't know. But I trusted her. She was very nice. So we figured out a date October 9th. I always remember the date because I'm a big John Lennon fan. It was his birthday. And she was coming Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And it was, she was leaving Monday. And I have it all worked out. Now, what happened what, during that time, what I had set up, during the daytime before she flew in, I had tickets for the Mets because the Mets were in the playoffs. And if they won that game that day, then they go on to the next thing against Atlanta. 
And, and then I, it was enough time to get to JFK to meet her. And then uh, that night I was doing Stand Up New York. I had two shows. Usually, in those days, us comics, we used to do six or seven shows on a Saturday. But I knew she was coming in, so I cut it down to two. I talked to the other comedians, and these are talk about a lineup. Nick DiPaolo, David Tell, me, and Greg Fitzsimmons, okay? I know. Fucking A. I mean, I, I've been part of these fucking shows, and it's just <laughs> normal, but it's like, when you look back. Those are storytelling shows. So anyway, so I call all the guys and say, look, I, can I go on first in the first show and last in the second show because I want to have dinner in between? No problem. All right, here's the day comes up. I go to the game. The game is fantastic, exciting. Um, they go to extra innings. I'm like, fuck, I got to leave. Extra innings. If the Mets win, they go on. If they lose, there's another game. So I run out of the stadium. I jump in a cab, tell the guy to turn on the, the, the game. Just as he turns on, home run to win the game. Of course, and it's only the fourth time in history that someone had a walk-off home run to win a series. Fucking Todd Pratt, if you're old enough, you remember who that was. Mike Piazza was hurt, he was on steroids or whatever, they hate him and whatever, so. so he was all fucked up from that. So I go to the airport, and, I, and it was before 9-11, so I went right to the gate. Remember, you used to be able to go right to the fucking gate? Because she was nervous, you know, I, she'd never been to New York. And she was really nervous, and I took her back to the apartment, and I, she was tired, so I put her in my room. I said, you should sleep for a couple hours, I'm going to go meet some girl on the internet. No, I didn't say that. I, I just wanted to see what you would say. Um, <laughs> you were, oh, what a fucking idiot. No, no, I, <laughs> I went out and I waited. And I went and woke her up a couple hours later and brought her pizza because I'm a New Yorker. I want, she's never had fucking New York pizza. And you know us New Yorkers, what do we do? We give people pizza when they come. That's sort of like the passport. Welcome to New York. Here's real fucking pizza. Shut the fuck up. I don't care where you're from. That's what you do. And if they don't fuck you then, they're never going to fuck you. You know what I mean? So that's, again, I'm making that up. And you see how you react. And she loved it. And of course, oh, it's the water in New York. You know that fucking speech we all do. That's, that's why we have the best bagels and the best fucking pizza. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so she gets some. She goes, she gets dressed for the show at Stand Up New York. And I swear to God, she comes out in an evening gown. She comes out in an evening gown. Like uh, Cinderella's stepsisters. Not the nice ones, the shitty ones for the subtext characters of the stupid. And, but, and I, uh, we're going to stand up New York. It's a shithole. You don't need a gown. It's not a shithole, but it was, it was a shithole. And it was a very sterile and not really nice. I said, look, I, I, she said, well, never been to New York. And I thought it's a big fashion place. And I said, no, it's like Cobbs. You just come and you get dressed. So she goes back in, she changes it into a dress. She looks very nice and we go to the thing. She wants a glass of wine, I give her a glass of wine. We go to the thing, I go on the stage, I put her in the audience right over here so I can watch her. And there's like a glass window over here. If you've been to Stand Up New York, you're on stage, glass window and you can see the bartender and all that stuff. And I see her and she's smiling, I'm doing my thing. And look over, smiling, and she drinks her wine. And then now we get up and we go around the corner, Ernie's for Italian food. Fantastic restaurant. I know all the waiters, all the waitresses, they're all <laughs> comedians that I work with at Caroline's and they were very nice to me. They gave me a nice table. And she said, I want some more wine. So I give her another wine and she's trashed immediately. Trashed. I mean, like the psycho switch got turned on. <laughs> Scary. She said, and so she finishes the wine, she said, I want more wine. And the whole restaurant, Saturday night. Huh! I mean, there are people in Jersey going, what? You know, it's like, one more wine. So I said, no, it's a long night ahead. We got another show, and then we'll go out and party, and we'll go drink and party and all that. Oh, whatever. So she's kind of angry, and she gets up to go to the bathroom, and she, well, there's two steps that she doesn't see, and boom, she falls flat on her face, 
and the whole restaurant's like, ah, this poor fucking guy. And they weren't mad at her because she was so shit-faced and loud. So, so then she gets up, I go to the bathroom, I come back and she has the bus boy, it, it, like by the lapels going, I want more wine! It was really fucking scary. So I get her up and we leave and they were too, I knew everyone so they were cool. But I'm like Mike, I'm not giving anyone attention, her boyfriend with the mic, I'm walking out of there like Mike, you know, like no one sees me. So <laughs> we go out front, there's a long line of people waiting. Then she goes to kiss me and, <laughs> and I didn't want to be kissed by this person. But, <laughs> but she opened her mouth like a lion. Like I was like, I needed a chair like a lion chair. Like, my head went in, you know what I mean? It was scary. So now I have like an hour and a half before my next spot and I'm freaking out. So I call the other comics and they said, no, no, we got all our spots and you can't change that. Please, you can't do it. Because see, New York City is very different than any other comedy city in America because it is like a ballet, a synchronicity where all the clubs do their show and they do it on time and the comedians keep to their time and because there are a thousand clubs going on and a thousand comedians, so you have to keep it going. LA, it'll be like, oh, the light comes on and be like, ah, fuck that, I'm sort of famous. I'll just talk for another 30 minutes. Fuck you, you piece of shit. You're not famous because you're a piece of shit. But in New York, we, were, we had that going. So it seemed like two days, I finally got to go on, and I tell the bartenders, do not give her more wine. And so I put her back in the same chair, and I look over and she's like, Aah! And you know, as a comedian, you're doing one thing with this side, and the other side, you're doing other weird shit, right? So a whole time I'm looking, and she gets up and she walks out. I don't know where she's going. I'm doing my act, and people are like, ha, 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 laughing. How the fuck do you know I'm dying inside, but I'm killing? And she, and I see her walk around to the bar and she's like, I want more wine, but you can't hear it, but you can see, right? And the bartender's like, you know, he has the lion tamer's chair and everything. And uh, so I finish my set, I go there. And as I go through the little hallway, I see her shoes. And then I know, and then I, and then I, and then I, I carry her and she's like, I want wine. So I bring her in the cab and I take her home. And I sit on the couch and she lays down and she goes, I want a party! And then she goes, fuck me! Now, that was the most unfuckable fuck me that's ever happened in my life. I, not, in retrospect, it was cruel to think that way, but that's how I thought at the moment. This poor girl who was just shit-faced and shouldn't ever be drinking and was nervous and drank and was fucked up. But she goes, fuck me! And then she goes, and then she said, that's all I'm good for, just fucking! Oh, I know, my heart was like, ah! Oh. And then that was two, here's the hat trick. And then she goes, fuck me, I'm a piece of shit. I know, I know. I'm like, no, what happened to the little girl that I met on the internet? And, <laughs> so I'm fucking her, right? No, no, I'm just kidding, kidding, kidding. Cheap, cheap, cheap. <laughs> I knew it would get a laugh. Cheap, cheap laugh. I picked her up, I put her in the bed, and I went in the other room. I didn't fuck her. I, I didn't want to. I, could, I couldn't, you couldn't, if there was money attached, you couldn't get me hard in that evening. And money attached, what the fuck does that mean? If you tie a dollar bill to my cock, maybe, you know, what the fuck do I mean? I think it's, so anyway. So I, I call the airline and they go, she bought a Priceline.com ticket, we can't make the change. And I'm like, oh no, I want to send her home, <laughs> you know? 
then I come up till like five, I call the airline, they go, look, just go to the air, airport and see what they say. Okay. So I, I sleep on the couch, she wakes up and the, and the first thing she walks out of my room is like, ah. And she said, I swear to God, she says, did we fuck last night? Oh, classy. And uh, I said, no, we didn't. You fell down the stairs and that's where you're bruised. And you know, she didn't remember that she fell down those stairs at the, at the restaurant. And uh, <laughs> it was a weird awe, you know. It was mixed up shit you made up in your own head that doesn't exist. <laughs> anyway, so I said, no, we, we didn't fuck. I said, but I have a plan and uh, let's have breakfast. So we go have breakfast at Kiev, I live in the East Village. And uh, we're having a good time. She goes, I should have never came to New York. Should have never came. I go, uh. <laughs> why? <laughs> she says, because my, my boyfriend thinks I'm in Reno and I'm here in New York and I don't know how to go home early and I go your boyfriend she goes yeah he never never broke up with him but he's kind of a douche and uh and I figured you were nice and if I came to New York and we got along then I'd I'd move in with you with my son and that's how that would work (laughs) where does he think you are I'm in Reno she thinks so of course you're going to trust this girl for the rest of your life where you going this weekend Reno you know that'd be forever and ever you know I'm going to get coffee Reno to get coffee so I take her to the airport, and uh, it was just a horror show. And I begged the lady behind the, the counter, and I lied. I said, you know, my mom told me never to lie. But so I kind of stretched the story. Because you can lie about someone being sick, then they fucking get sick, and then it's on your head, and it's all. And that's why I call my mom Rabbi Giltman, because she does all that shit and stays in my head. I don't care how old you get. And I said, uh, her son is ill, and the same with the elderly mother. It's kind of true. And they let her on for a hundred bucks. Because I would have, if she, they wouldn't let her on the flight, I would have bought her a hotel room and got her, uh, gave them money for her room service and all this stuff like that. She would have went home the next morning. But they, they let her on the plane and I fucking danced like I had just won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and it's very sad. I never heard from her again. It's a very, very sad story. But I didn't meet anyone on the internet for two years after that because it was so fucked up. It's a sad story, but it's something that stays with me my whole life and I wanted to share it with you. Thank you very much. Eddie Brown! Uh, you know, one of the nice things that I learned about the internet and butts, Eddie uh, w- got me thinking of, is uh, when I first signed up for Twitter, I I, I started following all these news sites and all these pundits that I might not agree with. And and what I found was that it was starting to get disturbing to just look at my Twitter feed. I was starting to like, oh, you know, find that it could instantly disrupt my mood. But then I learned that there are some Twitter accounts that only send out photographs of guys' butts. There's about five of them, and all they do, you know, throughout the course of the day is show you another nice butt. Uh, And what I found is now it's like, I'll see something in my Twitter like, oh my gosh, there's been a tragedy in Paris. Oh, but here's a nice butt. And then it'll be like, oh my gosh, someone else's podcast is doing better than mine. But you know what? Here's a nice butt. I, I feel like I have put my Twitter feed on antidepressants. Because it's like a little shot of serotonin to keep things just kind of balanced throughout the day. 
All right, our final storyteller tonight. He's been on Risk several times, and we just love him. He is a writer for Esquire magazine. Uh, he wrote the book, The Year of Living Biblically. You've heard him on NPR. Welcome to the stage, A.J. Jacobs. I've gotten some weird emails over the years. I'm, I'm sure you all have. A few months ago, my 83-year-old mother-in-law sent me an email, and the entire contents of the email were, how do you take heroin? So, uh, <laughs> no explanation, just my mother-in-law, how do you take heroin? That's how she talked. And I was like, you know, what's going on here? Is, uh, is this for personal use? Uh, is the mahjong not providing the thrills that it used to? And it turns out she was reading a biography of the blues singer Billie Holiday, and she was a bit confused about the method of intake, and she thought, okay, I'm a writer, I must be on drugs. So <laughs> she asked me, and yeah, I did what I could. I sent her some how-to websites and uh, a scene from Train Spotting, and you know. That was weird, so that was weird. But I think an even weirder email was the one I got a year ago, and it was from a guy I didn't know, and it said, Dear AJ, I've read one of your books, and I'm your 12th cousin. Also, he said, he continued, you should know that you're related to several European aristocrats and Karl Marx. So I figure the next line is gonna be, you know, here's my Nigerian bank account, please deposit $10,000. But he didn't, he didn't ask for money, and he didn't try to sell me herbal penis enlargement supplements, at least not yet. Instead, it turns out he's a dairy farmer, and he lives on a kibbutz in Israel, and he's obsessed with family history. And he's spent the last 25 years building this enormous family tree and it now has 80,000 people on it. And when I heard that, I was, you know, I was blown away. That is a buttload of people. That was my butt reference, because I'm trying to keep with the theme. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but 80,000 people, that is like two Yankee stadiums full of cousins. And part of me was like, you know, do I really want 80,000 new relatives? I mean. A lot of bar mitzvah presents, and uh, I have enough trouble with some of my current relatives, like my cousin who, and this is true, at his wedding hired a little person dressed as a leprechaun to hide under his bride's wedding gown and then make a surprise appearance at the party and do dirty dancing with the groomsmen. <laughs> so that, that's my first cousin. And all of his friends, by the way, they thought this was hilarious. And the rest of us, AKA those who possess souls, uh, were just sitting there with our mouths agape. And you know, it was these, like the audience in springtime for Hitler. It was just like, oh. So, so part of me was skeptical, but another part of me was really moved because I mean, here, here I was, I was alone in my office, but I wasn't alone at all. I was connected to 80,000 people around the world and not in a fake Facebook way, in a, in a real way. You know, these are mish, my mishpuka, as my people say. And, and I remember I was feeling depressed uh, that day, as I often am, and, and partly, <laughs> thank you for the woo, for depression. I love that. All right. <laughs> 
and partly it was because of personal stuff and partly it was because of the state of the world you know I, I spent the morning reading about the bombings and beheadings and and here's this little bright nugget of positivity and and they had this amazing feeling of being connected to something larger than myself and it made me feel less alone so this spurred me to get into genealogy and I began reading everything I could and I soon discovered that this guy's family tree with 80,000 people on it that's actually small potatoes we're in a crazy era of family trees there's something called the world family tree and it's not a tree it's an Amazonian forest it's not 80,000 people it's 80 million people or more precisely, as of today, I checked, it's 81,652,212. And it's growing all the time. It's probably added five people in, in that sentence I just said. So this is 81 million people in 160 countries, all connected by blood or marriage. Sometimes both, no judgments. And uh, so after a couple of days, I was able to connect myself to this world tree. So I'm one of these 81 million people. And it's actually remarkably easy. Anyone can do it. You just put your family tree on one of these websites, and then they'll search to see if the A.J. Jacobs on your tree is the same as the A.J. Jacobs on another tree. And if it is, then you can combine trees. And you just combine and combine and combine until you're now connected to the mother of all trees. So I did this, I got connected, and it was like going down the rabbit hole. Because I spent the next 10 days searching for people I knew who were related to me. So I'd be like, oh, look, there's Josh Cantor from Camp Powhatan. He's my seventh cousin, three times removed, awesome. And then I, I moved on to famous people. So I'd type in Kim Kardashian into the search in. Kim Kardashian has a big butt, by the way, and that's the theme, so that's why I threw her in. Um, <laughs> but I would type her into the box, and yes, she's connected. She's 14 degrees away. And President Obama, I would look for him on the tree, and he is, this is true, he's my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife's seventh great nephew. So, you know, practically my older brother. I could knock on the White House door and say, guys, you got any, you know, ambassadorships? Or, uh, uh, Kevin Bacon, by the way, is six degrees. He's not six degrees away. He's like 16 or 17, but he's in there. And it's, it's not all good news. Uh, I also found out I'm related to Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer. But I will say that's through my wife's side. Uh, <laughs> No offense to my wife, who I'm very scared of. Uh, <laughs> and I did have a little competition with my wife. I would try to find the worst people in the world connected to her, and then the best people connected to me. Uh, so that was a mature use of my time. Uh, but I spent weeks on this project, and I, I learned that I learned there's another way to get more cousins, and I, I wanted to amass cousins. I was like the Warren Buffett of cousins, and like a, a billion cousin heir. And then, and the other way is DNA testing. So you spit into a tube and send it off, and these services will analyze your saliva, and they'll send you back a list of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people on their database who share enough DNA that they are officially cousins. 
So I did that and I got the list back and I'm looking at my computer, looking through, seeing who my cousins are, interesting looking there. And I'm like, hmm, there's a name I recognize, Julie Jacobs. That's my wife. So <laughs> there you go. Yes, uh, my wife is my cousin. And I, you know, I've heard all, like, I've heard that all. It's very funny, you know, very funny, very funny. But, uh, we're not first cousins. We're more like seventh or eighth cousins, but still, we're cousins. I actually found this very interesting. My wife, I, I thought like, you know, this is gonna spice up our marriage. That's like <laughs> the forbidden fruit. But uh, she was not as excited. Uh, <laughs> I tried to explain that, you know, we're not alone. Everyone is married to their cousin if you go back far enough. So think about that. Uh, <laughs> So I soon decided this is going to be my next book. It's, I'm going to try to build the biggest family tree and write about genealogy. So I've been doing that for months. I've been researching genealogy. I spend a lot of time at genealogy conventions, which I love, because I, I don't often feel like a young man. I'm, I'm 46 <laughs> years old. But at genealogy conventions, I am like a baby. It's fantastic. <laughs> I was talking to this guy, this is just a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to this guy and he said, you know, let's keep in touch. And I said, sure, that'd be great. You know, what's your email address? And he said, I don't really use email, but I'll give you my fax number. So <laughs> that was a little hint. That's a little a look into the demographics. But uh, I love spending my days researching family, and partly because I, I like the sense of belonging. And it's a reversal for me. When I was a teenager, I didn't want any connections. I went through this Marxist phase, and now that I know Karl Marx is my relative, it all makes sense, uh, <laughs> but I went through this Marxist phase, I, I wanted nothing to do with my family. I was like, why should I care about these bourgeois people just because I share some DNA with them? Uh, but then I got older, and as often happens, I turned into my father. And uh, I have kids of my own, and I just want to be around them. And I, I actually like spending time with my family, even the ones who hire twerking leprechauns at the wedding. Uh, <laughs> because overall, it can be a good thing. It can be stressful, but, but it's a good thing. And I like the idea of making my family bigger and bigger. And in 10 years, this world family tree is going to have almost all 7 billion people on it. And for the first time in history, you'll be able to see how you're related to anyone else on earth, like how Jay-Z is related to the Pope. And I know I'm a little idealistic, but I actually think that when we see this, that we're all one big family, we might be a little kinder to each other, or at least a little less douchey. That's, uh, you gotta set the bar. And I want my kids to live in a less douchey world. And I've actually seen this transformation in my own life. And I'll give you an example, Judge Judy. I always found Judge Judy incredibly abrasive, just a nails on the chalkboard. Then I figured out she's my eighth cousin three times removed. And I'm like, you know what? She's not so bad. <laughs> She's just Cousin Judy. She's just doing her Cousin Judy <laughs> shtick. And I know that's a trivial example, but I, I've seen this happen in, in hundreds of other cases with other people. So a few months ago, I decided, okay, I've got all these millions of relatives. What can I do? And I decided I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to throw the biggest family reunion ever. 
and I'm going to invite all of my 7 billion family members. And so you guys are invited. You are all my cousins. And, <laughs> and I want you there. And I, it's going to be here in New York in June of 2015. And it, it's going to be like a family reunion meets a World's Fair meets Coachella. I don't even know if that's a relevant <laughs> reference because I'm old. But uh, it sounded good. Um, and I've been spending months organizing speakers and music and games and exhibits and food from all over the world. And it's all going to benefit Alzheimer's. Uh, and the, uh, I actually have, thanks for the woo for Alzheimer's. Um, and, and I've actually got these bands playing, including a very excited Sister Sledge is playing We Are Family. It seemed appropriate. <laughs> Uh, and I want to break the world record, which is 4,500 people at a family reunion. And, and I've been trying to get the word out. So uh, I've been trying to do press. And a couple of months ago, I got on a morning show. And I told them I was related to all these celebrities. And they're like, great. Let's get you interacting with your celebrity cousins. And they were going to do this taped piece. So one morning, I, I stood outside the talk show entrance as all the guests pulled up in their Escalades. And I'm standing on the sidewalk with the paparazzi and, and the tourists with their signs. And I'm holding a sign that says, I'm your cousin. And uh, so the SUV pulls up. And they're filming this whole thing for the show that they're going to air later. And SUV pulls up and Mark Wahlberg gets out. And I'm, uh, I've researched how Mark Wahlberg is my cousin. So I'm shouting at him. Hey, Mark, it's your cousin. It's your cousin AJ. You know, we're connected through the Donnellys, just like 21 steps away. And he looks at me like he's frightened. He's like, he looks at me like I, I have two heads. And by the way, which I was thinking, don't judge, he has four nipples. Uh, that's a little fact. That's true. <laughs> Nothing wrong with four nipples. But I thought I'd give you some news you can use. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, and then his bodyguard gets in and he's like, uh, you know, it was one of the top 10 humiliating moments of my life. And, and the morning show is filming it all. And I did the same thing with Melissa McCarthy, who came out next. She was a guest. And I was like, hey, Melissa, it's Cousin AJ through the Rogers clan. And she looks at me with a mix of fear and confusion. And her publicist is outraged. Her publicist is like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I just want to invite her to my family reunion that I'm planning. And she can bring the couscous. And the publicist says, the publicist says to me, that is a very strange choice of foods. <laughs> and she was right. I can't argue with that. I, I don't know why I said couscous. It just occurred to me at the moment. Uh, but I didn't make friends there. Now, not all interactions have been like that. In fact, oddly, it's turned out to be a surprisingly successful icebreaker. You know, it's like the ultimate social network cousin book. You know, I'm your cousin. So I, I figured out how I'm related to former President George H.W. Bush, Bush the Elder. And I called his spokesperson and I said, you know, I'm the president's cousin. Can I come down and interview him? And she was like, I guess, you know, <laughs> if you're his cousin. So I did, and uh, I met him. And I told him, I told him that he's eighth cousins with Bill Clinton, which is true. And he was very excited. And his wife, Barbara Bush, said, you know, that's great, because I always thought Bill Clinton was like a brother from another mother. Which, 
I did. I didn't see that coming. Another one I didn't see coming that President Bush was very excited. He was related to Terry Hatcher. His favorite actress is apparently Terry Hatcher. Who knew? More news you can use. Uh, I also got to interview uh, Daniel Radcliffe, who is also my cousin, and I told him, and he was very, he asked me to research how he was related to his girlfriend. So I'm not the only one with the, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of us out there. Uh, and I've gotten to meet Chrissy Teigen, the, the, the supermodel. I thought it was very important to find her and tell her that we're cousins. Um, so it has gone over well with, with a portion of people. With, uh, and, and we do have celebrities coming to the Global Family Reunion. Henry Louis Gates is coming to give a talk, and Daniel Radcliffe, and Nick Kroll, uh, the comedian, and this is exciting, Michael Ian Black from the greatest sketch show ever, The State, as we all know. Playing to the audience. Uh, <laughs> but I am, I'm incredibly nervous about it. It's coming up, I'm freaking out because I spend all my days planning this. It's like planning the biggest bar mitzvah in, in history. And I get a lot of questions. People are like, can I stay at your apartment? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe the first 200, 300. And I get some people are like, well, we, we share 50% of our DNA with bananas. Are bananas our cousins? And I'm like, absolutely, bring the bananas. <laughs> they are totally invited. But I'm actually hopeful it's gonna work and that it'll raise money for Alzheimer's and my kids will get something out of it. And I went to Chipotle's a couple of weeks ago with my son and <laughs> I love you guys cheer for Chipotle's and Alzheimer's. So, and depression, those are the three things that have gotten. Uh, I was with my son who's, who's eight years old and his friend who knew all about the project the friend, I figured out how he's a cousin, and, and this guy cuts us in line at Chipotle's, and I was outraged. I was like, what a jerk, what a jerk face. And my son's friend is like, well, he is our cousin, so <laughs> maybe we should let him go. And I'm like, that is great, you know, what a wise young man. Then we finish the meal, and my son's friend drops his fork on the floor. And I'm like, well, you know, you dropped your fork. And he says, yeah. And I said, well, you should probably pick it up because if you don't, the people who work here will have to pick it up and they're already overworked. And he's like, yeah, but they're my cousins. They'll understand. So I was like, all right, we have some work to do. But I still think that this one big family is the best hope we've got. And it's certainly the only family we've got. So thank you very much. One child behind We live by the park Where all the kids play That was my dog In a Superman cape Up in the wagon Head to the lake Hey, it's your birthday Mother made a cake This was the house Where everybody hang Ask all my friends They'll tell you the same So was it the house Or was it the gang Or a phenomenon No one can explain
That is all for this week's episode, folks. Thanks so much to Jeremy Ween and everyone else at NYC PodFest. Such a true pleasure. The festival has just gotten bigger and bigger each year, and it's a thrill and a real honor to be a part of it all. This is Air Traffic Controller behind me now. And don't forget that Risk is every fourth Thursday in New York City at the Pit and in Los Angeles at the Nerdist Showroom. So this is the week, if you're listening to this episode, the week it was released, Thursday is the day, January 22nd, to get to Risk in New York and Los Angeles. And then on January 24th, Risk is at San Francisco Sketchfest. We have a huge lineup. Leo Allen, Janine Brito, DC Pearson, Dominic Dierkes, and James Adomian. And then on February 6th, we are back in the Chapel Hill Carborough area at the DSI Theater. We actually are still taking pitches for that. Uh, the theme is Mad Love, so if you're in the Chapel Hill Carborough area, Get your pitches to us. There's still time. And do come out and see the show that night. That's February 6th. You can always find out where Risk is appearing next live at risk-show.com slash tour. Remember, Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. And just like all the other shows on the network, we are listener supported. We very much rely on the contributions made from our fans. So if you are interested, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member. And remember to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. That is butts. But, 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 but 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 but